Hello, hello, and welcome to My Tennis Journey. As you're listening today, it would be amazing if you could hit subscribe or follow if you haven't already. Now, today we're going to talk tennis, but we're also going to speak more generally about sport and the amazing role it can play in bringing people together in even the most challenging of times. Today's guest has written a book which I found really motivating to read. It's fired me up to crack on and try and get more children to start a life of sport and more adults to realise the benefits of sport. The book is called All to Play For. The author is a highly respected leader in the world of sport and also a massive tennis fan. Welcome to the show, Matt Rogan. Hello there. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. And I really am looking forward to talking about the book. Um, but first of all, I'd love to hear about your tennis journey. Um, how did you start playing, Matt? So I think I, I started playing what we now probably think of as, as relatively late, about age seven. I remember my uncle Frank um, once or twice a year got uh, the kids hoisted on him. My mum and dad had a, had a weekend off and... Um, Uncle Frank, I remember, took me down to play at a leisure centre, play tennis at a leisure centre. I suspect, well, it was definitely the days of wooden rackets. I suspect I was using one of his very heavy wooden rackets uh, and so didn't hit many. But, but I really enjoyed it. And um, from then, ended up um, playing with my mum. So my mum was, uh, uh, was a member at a club called Ivor Heath which is a little two, or then was a two-court club just outside Slough, two courts, shell courts and a practice wall. Uh, and uh, I went down there and when she was playing, I was hitting a bit against the practice wall. And, uh, and I guess it all took off from there, really, and, and was lucky to have a couple of people, a, a gentleman who's now passed away, but Joe Sherwood-Smith, who's very big in Bucks tennis, uh, and a lady, a real hero of mine, who actually appears in the book, a lady called Pat Roberts, who took me on and, and pushed me on a bit. And... And that was the beginnings of, um, of, of my tennis, right down the bottom bit of the narrow county of Bucks, stretches right from uh, Greater London up to, up to Milton Keynes. And I was right down south in there, playing my furrow on some fairly ropey duct shale courts. Brilliant. Love it. And do you know, it's amazing how many people that I've spoken to, you know, we're coming on to around, getting up towards 50 podcast now how many people when i say how did your tennis journey start mention a wall and hitting against a wall and like my son ned he was out there this morning hitting against the wall you know we didn't say yeah. to him go and hit against the wall but the ball always comes back if there's a tip for juniors out there if you're a tennis parent listening children hit against the wall the ball always comes back it's a great practice partner yeah absolutely and um you know, and now come on to it. Maybe now I'll probably find myself hitting against the wall um, in our the side of our house probably more often than I do make it down to a tennis club at the moment. And what always surprises me is how much hard work it is. It's a great cardio workout as well because because the wall never misses. There's never an excuse um, other than your own sort of slow feet to, to not being able to get back as well. So it's a great way to spend your time. I actually quite enjoy sort of sticking some music on, put the Bluetooth headphones on and, and really go at it for half an hour. Absolutely soaking and exhausted after it. But it's a it's a great way to spend half an hour. We've got to rebrand it. I think we've got to call it the Wonder Wall. Stick a bit of Oasis on. The ball's coming back. You know, give it, give it, because it is. You know, children who play against the wall, that, that sort of dedication of, of wanting to get better and better and the 
ball is coming back quickly off the wonder wall. It is a great workout. So yeah, brilliant to hear. Now, did that did that experience with the wall and at your club? Did did you end up competing a lot as a junior? Yes, I played. Um, I played right the way through uh, up to under 18s uh, for Bucks and and ended up moving on from either Heath just to to get. Um, some more kids at my sort of standards. So I ended up playing at Cheshire Boys and Bucks. And um, last year, I managed to squeak into that under-18 County Cup side. I'm not sure whether for Bucks, not sure whether that was um, that was pure um, belligerent loyalty or standard, but I, I played a few games um, and ended up squeaking some County Colours out of the journey. It was, it was a fantastic time. So you went on to, to Cambridge Uni. What was playing tennis at Cambridge like? So Cambridge, um, in terms of, well, firstly, the court base was, was amazing because um, every sort of collegiate system, so every college has a sports ground and um, they're really well looked after. And so spent the best part of, um, of three years playing on lovely grass courts. Um, unfortunately, I'm um, five, eight and a half at best um, and definitely a... Uh, um, sort of a backcourt grinder, thinker type tennis player as opposed to serving volley. So never really um, managed to stay in the first team for the uni first team for any material length of time because a lot of it was doubles. Um, we used to play, slightly strangely, play against a lot of county first teams. And I just didn't have the, the game to cope with that at doubles. Um, but again, made a load of friends, captain the second team to, to beat Oxford, which is obviously the, the focus of anyone at Cambridge is you can really strange, you can have, you know, you can lose 20 games in the year, but beat Oxford. And that will be seen as a better season than, than kind of win every single game of the year and lose to Oxford. It's a really curious sort of setup. Um, but the truth of it was the, the indoor uh, facilities and the opportunities to train during the rest of the year apart from the summertime are really pretty challenging so um, we were always scraping around to find some some hard courts that would drain well enough that we could play on them during the winter um, and you know ended up in my final year we found a uh, we found an indoor centre uh, that would have us between six and eight on a Monday morning wow um, and uh, probably the only reason my side won its varsity match that year was just uh, by the fourth year, I'd scraped another and together enough money coaching actually that I managed to get myself a car. So um, between the hours of five and six on a Monday morning, I, I could be found knocking on the doors of a load of bleary students, getting them out of bed, even in their boxer shorts and chucking a load of kit in too. And this ramshackle student bunch would turn up on a Monday morning, open the, they'd let us have a key, open the tennis centre, um, make themselves some coffee, <laughs> try and wake up and hear some tennis balls. But as you well know, it's a fantastic way to start the day when you're done, but it doesn't sound a very good idea at five o'clock in the morning. Proper dedication. Come on. And, and I believe, was it through a university sporting night out that you actually ended up meeting your wife? Yeah, so um, so perhaps more reflection and feedback on my on my tennis ability, but I was, I was made the social organiser for, for Cambridge Tennis for, for my last year. Um, definitely not a reflection on her hockey ability. My wife, Claire, was uh, was made social lead for, for the women's uni hockey team. Um, and so we got to know each other and ultimately got together after we arranged a 
kind of Cambridge tennis and uni hockey night out. It was in that strange period where um, we were about to try and juggle our grass court tennis season and finals. Hockey season had just finished. And so she was kind of slightly demob happy before she started her revision for finals. And we found solace in each other's need to, uh, to kind of get their heads around time management for the, for the, um, for the term to come. And that was in our final year. So we got together then and that was, I'm going to get in trouble for not remembering, let's say 18 and a half years on, we're still, you know, still together doing our thing. And it's, uh, I mean, similar one for me, actually, my wife and I, we met at Derbyshire Tennis Centre and, uh, and it, there's benefits, there's added benefits to sporting journeys other than just sport. Hey? Yeah, for sure. Well, look, I mean, they, we could talk about for the rest of the podcast about the benefits that, um, that playing a, a decent level of sport gives you wider in, in life. As, as your kind of work, family life got busier, was, was tennis put to one side or has it been a constant for you the whole way through? I definitely, I definitely view it as a constant. I definitely view um, what I learned from the sport and, and um, what I hope to achieve in the time I get to play sport. I definitely think of tennis as front and centre to that to this day. Um, I've had three or four sort of fairly nasty injuries. Um, you know, if you remember the big, long Michael Chang tennis rackets, um, yeah. which I, being fairly short, as I already described, I, I got to try and to put a bit more whip on my serve. Um, but that just put too much pressure through my wrist, so I ruptured all the tendon, ligaments in my wrist. And um, I won't bore on about all the injuries I've had, because nothing worse than listening to other people's injuries, is there? It's, about, it's a bit like hearing about other people's kids. But um, suffice to say, I've, I've kind of had two years fit, a year off, two years fit, a year off a little bit. Um, had a couple of really fun years playing the ITF Fets Tour, um, which I hope to go back to. I'm sort of ch- coming back gently at the moment from a um, fairly dodgy ankle injury. I'm still a trustee at, at um, the club where I, where I went back to and played 10 years at Halton um, in Bucks, the former RAF club, which is, which is still a matter of great pride to me and a fantastic base just outside of London. Yeah. Cool. Well, you, you made... 727 was it in the world rankings as a senior or that's where you're currently at i think so yeah. you're still active in those rankings you're going to get that ranking higher where have you peaked matt so, so that be the aspiration i'm 46 now so um yeah you just got to time those couple of years yeah. you play for new age bands um yeah if i can if i can get back fit i'd love to I'm, i have more flexibility in terms of when i work now so actually get tournaments that take part like vet stuff during the um during the week of really good because I'm on the road with the kids playing who play quite a serious level of uh, cricket and hockey now um, at the weekend. So, so that'd be intention. And I really love the, the culture and the community around vets tennis. It's fantastic. The, um, having played not one many matches, but played quite a lot of those tournaments, you know, the, I don't think I ever remember seeing a grumble over a line call, you know, it's just all people, mostly people who played at a very good level come back because they love it. Yeah. And that's a great place to start when you when you get a community of people together who've given up some days they are effectively their holidays to play. Uh, had some absolute lessons out there as well from a couple of people I've followed since who ended up making sort of last 16, last eight of, of world tournaments. It was just it's real pleasure. Yeah, amazing. I know my father-in-law um, and my wife's aunt have both played for Great Britain in, on the seniors 
Torn. And they end up with holidays. There have been some amazing places. That's got to be yeah. a goal for you, huh? You can't beat a bit of tennis tourism. I actually, um, so the whole of my, uh, my dad's side of the family from Ireland, and he and I went back um, two years ago, I think. It was pre-COVID, so maybe it's three years ago, to play the West of Ireland champs. I went back over there to play the West of Ireland champs, um, which was a real hodgepodge of, of levels and backgrounds. I lost to a Russian guy, I think, third round. Um, it was only a weekend tournament, so it was a bit disappointing because I'd gone out on Saturday. Um, but actually, it was the best thing that ever happened because uh, Saturday night was the um, w- was the Joshua fight. That was quite a late night in the middle of Sligo, and the Sunday had been no not fit for anything, let alone playing an international test <laughs> We could have a whole podcast on the social experiences of tennis, couldn't we? But uh, hey, onwards, onwards. We've got to come on to the book because. You know, I, I'm I've I've read the book once. I'm going to revisit it um, because I've really enjoyed it. The book's called "All to Play For: How Sport Can Reboot Our Future." So, can you bring to life why you think, Matt, sport can reboot our future? Sure. So, um, I'm very lucky as a result of the last five years, of ten years really, I've I've spent in my work to see sport from another a lot of different contexts. So I spent 10 years working in professional sport, working with Premier League clubs and, um, and, and Premier League and UEFA and FIFA and the IOC and people helping them develop relationships with fans, new fans, different generations of fans. Um, and I'm also involved in the, in the performance side of sport, um, working on the science and technology and sports psychology and sports medicine for Olympic teams and Paralympic teams. Um, and as I mentioned, I'm a dad of, of two young kids and uh, also heavily involved in a, in a charity that works in education, primary schools. So see and the role of exercise in that. So I've seen sport from all sorts of different perspectives. Uh, and I guess came to the conclusion, um, ironically enough, as, as lockdown was kicking in, that, that we were in the edge of a bit of a golden age um, for sport and exercise in terms of our understanding of the impact it has. And I say that because all at the same time, um, charity I work with, a charity called Stormbreak, um, that uses exercise as a means of just getting kids focused and happy at school. Not P lessons, but just little two minute, three minute interventions, the beginning of maths, uh, just before assembly, wherever it might be, just little activities. Um, And they were starting to have hard evidence that shows that kids are more productive in their lessons, they're happier um, and their teachers are happier and the teachers stay longer when they move. They don't have to do sport, but when they move. Um, I have a couple of friends who are GPs who are starting to say, you know, we're really starting to understand that when we uh, recommend exercise um, rather than drugs as a means of, um, of sort of stepping back from being on the edge of diabetes, or, or starting to manage mental health. We're starting to understand how to really make that work for our patients. Um, from a professional sport perspective, we're starting to, we were at the same time, we were starting to see Raheem Sterling make more difference to the debate on, on racism in this country than Boris Johnson or any political, of any persuasion ever, ever has done. Um, and we're also starting to see um, in towns and centres, town centres up and down the country, um, 
more understanding of what happens when you do build a park or when you do build um, a sports facility in the middle of a community, what good that can do. And so in all my different um, walks of life, I was starting to see people understand the real impact that sport can have. Not just that we can all go out, get sweaty, come home and feel happy about ourselves, but, but what it can mean on a more broad basis when we get it right to health, to education, social inclusion, to the way we plan our towns and centres. Um, and that's what I mean by how sport can reboot our future. It's, it's that we stop thinking ourselves as our own little island of people who wander around getting endorphins in tracksuits and start to think about the, the broader benefit that sport can bring. And this to me is, you know, reading the book just made me feel so alive and energised to get on because, you know, having left the corporate world to get involved in the sporting world for the reasons that you've just explained, but it, it just makes it, it just makes it incredibly motivating to be a part of this movement to show that that sport that being active can just make a real difference to people across this country no matter who they are and i mean you know for for we have a lot of parents listen to the podcast you know for parents out there and i'm going to share this as far and wide as i can with all the parents i know to say you know, why is it important, Matt, if you can sum it up for children to play sport and to be active? Well, the first thing I'd say is um, I actually think, I, you know, I, right now for, for British kids, I take be active. When kids are active, they play. Now, some, some kids going forward um, will want to do a, a formal, structured, organised sport, and some kids will just want to play whether playing is, is parkour or jumping off walls, whether playing is just larking around outdoors by a river with their mates, like, it doesn't really matter. Like, but, but we now have the evidence that shows when they play, they're happier. When they play, they learn better at school. When they play, they're more confident. When they play, their physical development is stronger. And when you put all these things together, there's a lot of evidence now, actually, that suggests that... Um, when you, your core stability develops by just you have to do exercises but as a kid when your core stability develops just by being outdoors and being active opens up different bits of your brain which helps you learn more effectively and and so um, irrespective of if you have 0.001 percent of your of your brain you can't quite shut off from the hope that um, your son or daughter might be the next Emma Raducanu that's irrelevant. You should want your kids to play because it will make them happier, healthier individuals, more rounded individuals. Um, and actually, to that point, um, one of the uh, one of the things we talk about in the book is is the sort of overparenting in this regard and the risks that that creates. And and you know, I've seen it, you've seen it, we've all seen it in on on tennis courts and. The, you know, the tennis parent was around mid-80s, weren't they, just as much as they are in, in 2020s. And um, one of the things, just a story to share around the book, um, was I, I spoke quite early on to, a, to a, a group of coaches about some of the findings that come out of the book. And they said to me afterwards, you know, uh, and I should stress they're not, they're not tennis coaches. Um, they said to me afterwards, you know, the most fun we've ever had coaching kids, the most fun we've ever had uh, was just as the as the pandemic was setting down and we were able to get them back on on pitches again, and they said the reason that was so good was because the parents weren't allowed to watch, right? And when the parents weren't allowed to watch, um, 
the kids smiled a bit more. The kids took more risks. Kids listened. Kids could listen to each other's what they were saying to each other rather than these blarings coming on from the sidelines. You can guess the sport, right? And, um, and so one of the things I think we've maybe learned from the pandemic, certainly coaches learned, is, you know, as parents, we need to make sure we give opportunities for our kids to play, but also not get too obsessed about their structured sport and their rankings and their ratings and all this kind of stuff. There's a load of time for that. Let's just let them play. Let them play. And, and I love it. And it's, um, it's actually something that, you know, historically, children would get dropped off at tennis tournaments and be left all day at that tournament. And that's just not possible from a safeguarding point of view nowadays. But there's one thing that I absolutely believe is let your children be free at the tournament, yeah. at the football pitch, and they will play with more freedom. It's when, you know, the, the interventions come in from the sidelines in whatever way they are that you see that fear and the, the fear affects the way they play. It affects their enjoyment. It affects whether they actually want to do it. Yeah, you think, I mean, it's, uh, it affects, fear affects all of us, right? You think how you feel a, um, a really tight game serving a, a, your advantage or, you know, in the third set. You think how tight you feel. Imagine if you felt that tight 25 times during a match because you could see your parents' eyes going <laughs> into the side of your head. Like, you're just creating that environment for your kids. Why would you make them go through those nerves for five times a set, it makes no sense. It's so true. I've got to do a parenting special sometime. I've got to. But such such wise words and such you know motivating words. There was there was a little passage which really got me thinking about the priorities in education in the mm -hmm. book, and, and I'll just read a little bit of it. A YouGov parent survey published in late 2020 found that almost two thirds of parents believe that the well-being of pupils is more important than their academic attainment. And more than half also agreed that pupils' well-being is likely to be better in schools that prioritize sport and physical activity. Just how important Matt, are primary schools in sowing the seeds to help sport, activity, play, reboot our future? But completely fundamental because of the of the evidence that we're starting to be able to see in terms of how movement and activity not only helps kids be um, happier, healthier individuals and helps their teachers feel like they're actually listening to them and that they're engaged, but also that they are academically more productive as well. So, so it's, sort of, it's it's not necessarily a binary thing. It's it's yeah. Um, you, you know, I run a, um, I've, I've seen run rather a fantastic exercise called Stormbreak by Stormbreak, the charity I mentioned, where before a maths lesson, it's called the Classroom Cuss Country. Um, they have the kids sit on a chair, they sit on their chairs and just pretend they're going through a horse race, right? So they're kind of bouncing along, sitting back down, then go over a hill, go over a fence, go over a fence, left a bit, right a bit. Um, and they laugh their heads off and then sit down when that's done and they just learn more effectively. You see the chatter stop, you see a bit more focus. Some of them are breathing a bit heavy. They're all, they're all smiling. Like that's not, that's just living life to the full, right? Without wanting to be too, too twee about it. Like it's, that's how life should be, whether we're, we're 45 or we're five. That's it's kind of how life should be in my mind. And, and the important thing is that, 
we can now show the benefits of exercise on health and we can show the benefits of exercise on education. And what it means is potentially sort of rethinking the role of, of PE because physical education isn't physical education, it's life education to get it right. And, um, you know, primary schools are fairly challenged at the moment in this country. So, you know, they receive a, an amount of money from the government every year to spend exclusively on sport, without which, frankly, would be in awful shape. Um, but I think I'm right in saying your average uh, primary school teacher has had six hours of, of training as to how to teach sport, to teach physical exercise. And so the best one in the world, they're, they're going on gut feel, flailing around in the dark and, and trying to work on the basis of whatever educational stuff's on Sky Sports, which is not a lot. So um, we need to find ways to make it easier for, for teachers to teach physical education, movement, if you like, because it's so fundamental, not just to health, but also to the speed of which kids learn. Brilliant. And, you know, I love the idea of the, the classroom cross country. And I've found like, you know, where, where I'm teaching tennis in primary schools, you always find in every class a commentator. And I've got a bit, you know, I've got this picture of this guy over here, the other girl who's, who's commentating. I'm like, and they're off, and they're over that first it's, sentence. Yeah, it's exactly that. Like, it's a shame it's not a video pod or I'd make you do it, mate. But um, <laughs> yeah, give it a go. It's, it's a, Have a look at the Stormbreak website. I think you can download that one if you want to have a go with, you, with the kids. Brilliant. Love it. I will. I absolutely will. And then it's about how, how, therefore, activity and physical activity can become part of the whole curriculum. It's not just absolutely. an hour that you go off and do yeah, your days. And also the fun that it can bring. I mean, you know, in the book, you've got lo lots of little interviews with people and, and you, you got to speak to Johnny Marr, you know, an unbelievable musician, lyricist. And he said something that I thought was really amazing around this sort of theme. You know, he said, if you let a toddler out of a car onto a piece of grass, they just take off. No one explains the benefits of running to young kids. They just do it instinctively. And I think the future is about returning to our instincts. And that just really made me think about the fun of just doing these things, just taking off. And, you know, I read it and I found it like, I just got to go for a run, you know, and I haven't been for a run for ages. So thank you very much, Matt. And thank you, Johnny. It, it reminded me of a, a, an old sort of techno track I, I had called Act on Instinct. And how good would it be in the future if people can keep that childhood instinct to just run around and have fun into their adult lives? And, and how can we make that happen for adults too? So, so look, I think um, well, I did quite a lot of running now and, and talked to a lot of people about running. And, uh, and we spoke to um, we spoke to Mel Bound, uh, who runs a, an organisation called This Mum Runs uh, through the book. And I, I think that the reality is running is hard. Right? That, that going back to running or just thinking nobody's looking, I'm going to have a rather than walk around the dog around this kind of playing field or maybe I'll just jog a little bit walk and run or whatever um the the problem is when you come from complete inertia as as the start point for that then it's hard but if you come from a position and a lot of self-imposed pressure then it's hard but if you come from a position of going nobody's watching well, I'm just why don't I just jog for 100 yards and then walk and actually I come from reasonable base fitness because I've walked the dog every day for five years then actually that 100 yard quite quickly can become 150 or 200 and it can just be fun right the, the problem is coming from from complete inertia with um and, and so i think the way we make it most easy 
is just it's why we talked about just keeping people active in their regular course of life and letting them play whatever play means to you play can be walking the dog but if if that's your if our baseline is higher then just having a hit on a tennis court or just going out for a jog or or, or whatever it might be is is actually a lot less scary because it hurts less frankly the first time around and if you look at um the way for example parkrun do it um so parkrun actually is a, is a property which obviously is um, it's been fantastic in terms of getting people out uh, exercising in this country. The way, the reason it's worked for Parkrun is that um, they do a lot of work in terms of having people to hold hands and having people to just kind of say, look at, work, meet you for the first time at Parkrun and say, look, welcome. Doesn't matter if you run, doesn't matter if you walk, we'll come with you. We'll help you along the way. We'll be the tail walker and have a natter along the way and, and just take away the fear. So you take away the fear and take away the pain, you're a long way, a long way. Sounds horrible, doesn't it? But actually, it's once you get rid of those two things, it's it's some of the best way to spend a sunny morning. And if you realise the benefits of activity, just like you said, if you realise the benefits of activity, of movement since an early age, it's always there in, in your being. It's easier to revisit. It's easier to go again because it's part of you and it'll bring back the memories in a positive way, you know. So, yeah, and, and it's really interesting, Mel Bound, Mel Bound, who did start this mum run, she talks about how in the future that she thinks brands will start to look at organisations making a genuine difference in, in grassroots level. You know, do you think that, that brands, the big corporate brands out there are starting to look at it and think, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll sponsor some of the big organisations, some of the big blue ribbon events, but we're also going to really try and make a difference in grassroots sport, grassroots activity? Yeah, I think um, I think it's pretty much there, if I'm honest. So if you look at, um, I think that change is happening as we speak. Uh, there's a lot more internal debate within companies as to whether the right thing to do is uh, sponsor the World Cup for billions of pounds over the next sort of 15 years, or actually whether that money's better spent creating a tangible difference to grassroots and the communities you really care about. Um, COVID has something to do with that, but so does um, the views of younger generations in particular about, about corporates. Um, so if you look at any of the recent research, um, younger generations in particular in America and um, Europe don't trust companies and they don't trust governments. Uh, that's not a personal view. That's what the empirical research says. And so when that, like, if you run a company, you can't afford for that to be the case, right? You just can't. Um, and so to put time and effort and energy back into generating trust by behaving ethically and behaving with, with quality is, is how all brands can have to go about it in a way that, um, you know, when Ben and Jerry's did that 15, 20 years ago in North America, they were an outlier. Um, but that community social contribution from brands is absolutely the way in which, um, the, uh, in Britain at least, that the world is going to is going to move. Um, I think it's really exciting, and you know, there's a chapter about this about within the book, and I, and I think it's sort of if you're going to build that trust and you really sincerely want to make a difference, because the power of sport is that it can bring us together when seemingly everything else in the world is tearing us apart you know is 
is that something that, that, that the research and writing the book really demonstrated to you, Matt? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and on that, maybe the best example of that, I think, over the last 18 months um, has been the role of, of some um, really admirable athletes uh, in terms of making meaningful contributions to, to our society when um, you look at austerity, you look at Brexit, you look at COVID, look at the levels of debt younger populations are in. And that ABCD, by the way, we call the toxic alphabet in terms of the context that a lot of um, younger generations in this country are completely disillusioned by. And, uh, and you look at the way that Marcus Rashford, Raheem Sterling, and Andy Murray, right, are sort of helping to navigate some social issues that, whether it's gender, whether it's race, whether it's food poverty and, and differences in um, haves and have-nots in this country, you know, are making meaningful contributions at a level that, that maybe our politicians aren't. You know, sport is one of those things that can still cut through, can still generate trust, and therefore can still help us to move to a better place where... Um, you and I are still talking despite the fact we might have had different views of Brexit or different political persuasions, whatever it might be, because we have a different population that we can trust and buy into. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that um, on, the, on, on its own, that is enough um, to drive a, a slightly better Britain going forward, but I am suggesting that that's an extremely positive contribution to our society and, and a contribution that younger generations are going to be in charge in 10 years time I'm not going to forget it's so true and you know I know that that sport has the power you know as an occasion um to bring people together on the occasions but also I think you know calling somebody out like Rashford who my family all of us have sat in the front room listening to Marcus Rashford speak so passionately about how we can improve society and make it easier for people and and all of us from age eight through have sat there nodding and going, yes, Marcus, come on. You know, that's just amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. And, um, you know, if you take it into the, into the world of tennis, you know, um, our, our country has been isolationist from global politics for the last few years. Uh, looked to pull itself out of, out of Europe um had its issues with with some of the most powerful nations in the world and we have a um still just never stops to make me smile we have a new u.s open champion whose father is romanian um who speaks fluent chinese who is the epitome of a global citizen that you know great irony is my son sees himself as a um part irish part english part of the world doesn't you know, and identifies very differently with with sort of international politics uh, and international sort of um, game playing that that we seem to be obsessed by in our generation. And and Radicani is a good example of somebody who who you know carries a lot of different generations, a lot of different sort of nationalities within her, and more power to her. Yeah, unbelievable. And you know, it ties in with the themes of the book and. Yeah, I mean, the Ebba Radicani opportunity for us is, is amazing. Just amazing. Fantastic. 
Now I know uh, you know it, you've you've obviously you've you've worked in sport. You've done a lot of thinking about sport. You've got incredible knowledge about the research and what what activity and sport can bring. Um, but if you were put in charge of sport on our planet Earth for one day, Matt, with all this knowledge that is in your head, what measure would you introduce to help sport truly reboot our future? Okay, um, that's a very big question. I, I would. So by that, I, I infer that you're only going to give me one. Um, but I've already talked about using exercise at the beginning of every single lesson, every single classroom up and down the country. So I'll leave that one aside. I think I would um, structure sport differently uh, in terms of where it fits in our country and our government. So at the moment, you have a Department of Education, Department of Health and Sport sort of sits on its own in DCMS and doesn't have the same kind of cabinet links or doesn't have the same potency. Um, so I think I would move sports um, into into health, actually, give me a choice. I think I'd move it into health um, because the biggest problem we have right now in this country is that we have, you know, we're wrapped in debt. We have GP waiting um, times increasing. We're waiting times for surgery increasing on the back of COVID. But our health system is grinding to a halt and there's no criticism of anyone who works in it. It's a fantastic organisation. But, but it has been underfunded and needs some creative different solutions. And I believe sport is that. So if you give me one, then I'm going to put um, sport into the Department of Health to be a coherent part of the prevention of a bunch of the challenges we have. And um, my personal view is if, if we're right with, if we do right by sport and um, are smarter in the way, in terms of the way we embed messages about nutrition, we can certainly reverse ourselves out of the, uh, the ticking time bomb of diabetes is just one that we're on in this country. Come on, come on. Well, I hope, you know, you've obviously got to know all sorts of people through your working career and your, your sporting journeys. And I hope you can knock on the door and make that one a reality in some way, because preventative measures through sport, which we know through our conversations brings all these other benefits as well. Then why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. Well, there you go. That's my, um, if I can, at the end of this uh, journey with the book, if sport can be a more coherent part of, of um, either education or health or even better both, then then it would have been a project that I'll be desperately proud of. Come on, I'll vote Matt on that rule change. I don't yeah. know. I have no interest in working politics, but... <laughs> <laughs> Come on now. We a question, Matt. And firstly, thank you so much for your time. It, you know, people, if you have listened to this and if you're fired up about the difference that sport, that activity can make in our worlds, to our children, to our friends, you know, then please do uh, get a hold of a copy of the book, All to Play For by Matt Rogan. Uh, I know it's available in all good booksellers. You'll find it online. Um, there'll be links in the podcast to it. Please do have a read because it can inspire how sport and activity can change our world for good. Um, so thank you so much for your time, Matt. I mean, we've got to though one question we ask everyone. So we have to finish by asking you this question. Um, if you could go for a drink with anybody alive or dead, who would it be and why? So um, there were three or four tennis players I, I really admire from times past um but i won't pick them i'm going to pick a guy who uh, was born in 1809 
um, in the middle of nowhere in England in a little place called Much Wenlock. Um, there's a guy, a doctor, William Penny Brooks, um, who trained to be a GP in Paris, came back when his father also a GP passed away, took over his practice in Much Wenlock. And Penny Brooks was um, worried about the unhealthy population um, who were wedded to their drink in, the, in, the, in his local village. And so he did two things that were related. First off, he, was the, um, he launched a public library. And the second thing he did was um, create a, a sports festival through the summer. Um, and that sports festival was inspired by uh, Greek tradition and called it the Olympian Games. Brilliant. So it was the Wenlock Olympian Games and um, came to visit him once that was set up, a, a gentleman called Baron de Coubertin, who was then responsible for, uh, as everyone will well know, going back to Greece and, and creating the, the Olympic Games as we know it in 1896. So interestingly, if you go right back to history, actually health and sport and education fit together in, in one triangle right from the beginning of the Olympic movement as well. And that was that was down to William Penny Brooks. Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure he'd be that interesting to have a drink with because I don't think he drank. But um, yeah, he'll sit there in a glass of wine while I'm a glass of water while I'm on my IPA. But I think he'd be a fascinating person to talk to nonetheless. It's a brilliant, brilliant uh, guest to have a drink with. The story is explained within the book and uh, and it's so inspiring in terms of the difference that an individual can make on a local basis, which leads through, you know, a coincidence or however they found out about this Olympian Games going on into something that has just impacted the whole world in a positive yeah, way. Yeah, for sure. And if you look at... You could park crime. It's like one guy in Bushy Park created a model which was replicable, used technology to do it, got some corporates to, to help him fund rolling out this thing called park run. And like this, the, one of the beauties of digital and, and our smaller world now is that change can happen really quickly. So um, hopefully I've managed to, to create a little bit of that through the book, but anyone listening also can. Come on. Well, yeah, if you're fired up by what you've heard, do get hold of a copy of the book, All to Play For by Matt Rogan. Matt, thank you so much for your time. I've absolutely loved chatting and, uh, yeah, very much appreciate it. No worries. Hopefully get a chance to have a hit on court someday. Take care.